Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Sociology. My name is Michael Johnston, and I have Bernadette Barton online to uh, talk about Strip. Dr. Bernadette Barton is Professor of Sociology and Gender Studies at Moorhead State University and a popular public speaker. She's unafraid to tackle controversial issues. She completed her PhD from the University of Kentucky, and her scholarship explores the experience of members of marginalized groups. She is most fascinated by issues of transformation and social justice, such as what makes someone conscious of social inequality, what causes people to change oppressive attitudes and behaviors, how can we really see one another across vast difference of geography, gender, race, class, and sexual identity. Her books included the one that uh, we'll be talking about today, Stripped, Inside the Lives of Exotic Dancers and Pray the Gay Away, The Extraordinary Lives of Bible Belt Gays, Bird. Bernadette's new projects uh, are in the area of raunch culture and the impact that it has on uh, on the lives of young people and marriage equality and mobilization in Kentucky. Uh, thank you, Dr. Barton, for being on our show today. Um, do you have anything addi- in addition to add to your profile and maybe what you're doing right now? Um, actually, I, we're going to be talking about my new book, my new edition of Stripped, and it's titled More Stories from Exotic Dancers. Yes, thank you for uh, mm-hmm. adding that piece. Yes, the mm-hmm. uh, original came from your dissertation, if I remember correctly. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And I recently revised it and, and revised every part of it, and it uh, came out in 2017. And the cool part about mm-hmm. that is the is how you became mm-hmm. uh, reunited with the study. Uh, it was an undergraduate student who... Yes, it was. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly so. Um, so w- w- did you also want me to talk a little bit about Pray the Gay Away, or was this just going to be focused on Stripped? This is going to be focused on Stripped, but I would love to have you back <laughs> on the show, maybe for that uh, uh, for the previous book in the, in the near future. Okay, well, that would be great. Excellent. All right, so I guess to uh, begin with this... Uh, Stripped, The More Stories from Exotic Dancers. How, how did you get into this? And uh, I, as I said, an undergrad. My apologies for that. I understand that a uh, undergraduate student uh, really resurfaced that interest. And what was it about uh, uh, their research that brought you into uh, brought you back to your research? Oh, thanks. What a great question. Well, let me just step back and tell you about how I got involved in the topic at all, and then I'll walk you through to uh, the recent uh, edition. So, again, yes, uh, Stripped was my dissertation research. Um, So I collected data between 1998 and 2003. Um, I defended my dissertation in 2000, collected more data after that. Um, But what I was really interested in was this intersection between feminism 
and sexuality and um, dancing, actually, because I was a ballet dancer when I was a child and a young woman, and I had always hoped to go on and and become a professional dancer in New York. Um, But what happened was I got injuries and I wasn't able to do that. Um, But I had this huge skill set that I could never use for anything. That was so it always frustrated me when I was uh, a young woman and an undergrad and I was broke and I would look at uh, newspaper ads, which I know we don't have newspaper ads so much anymore, but now it's the internet. But uh, I would see these ads that would say dancers needed and big capital letters. And I'd be like, oh, wow, I'm a dancer. And then I would realize that it was um, stripping. And I think, okay, maybe not that kind of dancing, but it would pique my interest. And I would wonder like, what, what would it be like to do that kind of work? What is, what's it like for the women who do that? Um, what do they think about their work? Um, so I went into the clubs and I interviewed women and it was a long haul. And the beginning, getting women to speak with me about their experiences because they really didn't have any reason to trust me. Um, but eventually, laboriously, I found a way to better connect with them. I found a key informant who introduced me to other women. I collected just the most amazing data, um, finished my dissertation, published, stripped, and um, was thrilled to have this book out there. It was so exciting to have a book. Um, and the book was received well. I was happy about that. And um, I went on to teach a class. I developed a class called uh, sex industry perspectives. And in that class, I would use my book along with, of course, a lot of other scholarship on the sex industry. And, um, so that was a real popular class. And there aren't a lot of classes that are taught in universities on the sex industry. So, um, I teach in a department that has sociologists, social worker, and criminology majors. So there would be a lot of criminology majors that would take this class. Anyway, one year, I think it was 2013, I had a young woman who was just really energetic and honor student and passion. And she decided she wanted to see for herself what it was like uh, in the world of an exotic dancer. And she went and did observation in strip bars in Lexington um, in a couple of places. And then she wrote this honors paper for my class. And I was so struck by all the things that had changed since I had published strip. So, um, the first edition came out, the original edition came out in 2006. And I don't know, do you know when, Michael, the uh, smartphone first came out? It would have been, uh, let's see, probably 2008. 2007, very close. So right around that time, there was just these seismic changes in the culture. We're in the middle of this technological revolution that some are saying is even is the biggest revolution in human history, bigger than the Industrial Revolution. Well, anyway, in between when I wrote the original and the new edition of Strip, we had internet porn and smartphones just explode in the culture. And that really affected the experiences, the work lives of exotic dancers. So what I did is I went back into the clubs. Um, I asked this young woman to be my undergraduate assistant, and together we went back and we interviewed a bunch of women. This time it was actually a lot easier to uh, get folks to interview with me. Um, so I collected another 30 interviews. Oh, I asked my editor. I was like, 
Eileen, do you want me? Are you at all interested? Because I was thinking I would just take this data and do a couple of journal articles with it. But I thought, oh, well, I'll float the idea by my editor. You know, maybe she'll think it's a good idea. And she did. She was extremely enthusiastic. Responded with alacrity. Um, so I collected again another 25 interviews, and and this was the really fun part that 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 makes the new edition very unique. And I I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk about this because I just I it's, it was such an exciting experience for me because at first I was kind of resenting having to rewrite this book like oh what did I do why did I take on this new project it's already done. But and I was like, oh, whatever, you know, I guess I don't have to do it. Right. And then I started rewriting it and it was the single most rewarding writing experience of my life. I was able to take this book, which it was a good book. I mean, I'm proud of the original edition, but I was able to. It was like a relationship do-over because you think of a book, it's like it's done, it's out there, there's nothing more you can do with it, you're stuck, whatever it is, it is. But I was able to take every moment in that book that I thought was awkward or redundant or didn't make any sense and fix it. So the new edition is completely revised. I literally rewrote every sentence. I omitted stuff that I thought didn't was never well said. I combine stuff. I move stuff around. There's 40% new text. There's just new findings that are included in the in the new edition. A whole chapter on raunch culture um, and how that's influencing the internet porn and how that's influencing the sex industry, which ended up being kind of a platform to my new book that I'm writing right now. So all of that is to say that I was extremely, I'm extremely proud of this book that came out in January of 2017. And um, I think it's vastly better than the original edition, although it's not really getting nearly as much attention as the original edition, because that's just what happens with with second and new editions of books. It's just they they don't seem new to media folks. So so anyway, I'm I'm really Glad to have this opportunity to to talk a little bit about this new edition with you. And uh, I, having to rewrite the whole book is is largely attributed to the uh, new findings that you had and how drastically different it was from the original. Could you talk a little bit uh, about some of these uh, shifts that have taken place in in the strip industry? Sure. So uh, some of my original findings hold true. Some things have changed. So uh, among my findings are um, that dancers experience the toll of stripping. And the toll, I theorize, as this accumulation of experiences where um, what is once positive and empowering about stripping for some women gradually loses its appeal over time. So, uh, for example, um, now not every woman enjoys stripping. There's a lot of women who, most women go, why do they strip? Women strip because they need the money. They're economically in need. Um, Some women also enjoy elements of it. And the elements that they enjoy include well, of course, making lots of money, uh, but also getting attention, sometimes feeling beautiful, um, getting to enjoy making themselves up and, you know, decoration, you know, just the whole costuming element can be kind of fun. Uh, 
<clears throat> Some women like the artistic, but they, they put a lot of artistry into the costuming. Some women like breaking taboos. Um, but what happens over time is, and, and I will say, some women don't really like anything about it and are simply doing it for the money. Um, but what happens over time is that the negative experiences in with, within the clubs have a cumulative effect. So that what, what was once positive ceases to be uh, all that great. Not that it still isn't nice to get compliments and it isn't nice to make $300 or $500 in a night, but that when you've had so many, you just get, we as humans adjust, we adapt, it's called hedonic adaptation, uh, to good. Um, so the good becomes less exciting to us and the bad becomes more salient. So dancers will have really negative experiences in the club. Um, and they'll have, they may have them every night. They may have them once a week. They may have them once a month. It just kind of depends on the club climate. And at first, when you're in sort of that new glow of, oh, it's all new, kind of exciting, trying to figure it out, you can tune out the negative a bit. But once that new fades away and all becomes familiar, the negative comes into relief very strongly. So let's say a dancer has a really bad experience, like one woman describes of being assaulted at the club, being penetrated against her consent and or or spit on and called a dirty slut. And she's really upset. She goes to the dressing room and she just has to keep her shit together and and either go back out there or don't. But she has to, like, make a decision about what's happening. And maybe something that bad only happens once a month. Um, although you've got the mundane day-to-day -day rejection, rude customers, smoky environment, uh, drug and alcohol use, all that stuff also takes a toll. Um, but then, okay, so one really bad thing a month. Then there's two months, so two really bad things. After eight months, that's eight really bad things. It's like those are very vivid in a woman's imagination, whereas the pleasure of dressing up in a costume well, who cares now? It's like, oh, God, I have to actually put all that glitter makeup on now. It gets boring. And then the hundred thousands man saying you're beautiful. It's like, oh, well, whatever. So what do you think? You know, what do you know? And, you know, that just becomes mundane. So it doesn't compensate a dancer for the labor and the, the psychological um, stress. And then they also have to, many of them hide what they do from their families and friends. So that is also incredibly stressful. And then finally, the stigma just never goes away. So the stigma, uh, you can ignore it first, but the longer you do the work, the more you just have to day in and day out deal with the stigma of being a sex worker or being an exotic dancer, which means that people perceive you negatively and think bad things about you without really knowing anything else about you but that. Okay, so to continue, what's changed? So that part, all that that I just described is pretty much the same. What's changed is that um, before internet porn, dancers made more money because dancers are now competing with internet porn for customers' dollars. So, so customers are like, why should I go see a live naked woman when I can just watch and pay for it when I can just go watch internet porn for free?
And in fact, the internet porn thing is so intense. Dancers described men, customers coming into the bars and actually looking, streaming porn on their phones while they're in the presence of live naked women. So that strikes me as a little strange. <laughs> um, so in fact, there's a club, there's, there's places that have porn playing along with women in in the, uh, the the club so that's again a new thing um, another new thing is raunch culture and that's what my new project is on and raunch culture is our hypersexualized culture that I date to um, around the early to mid 90s that we started to see it uh, creep more and more into mainstream culture and I connected to it with the ascendance of the internet so it isn't that there wasn't hypersexualized imagery before 1995 it's that internet porn and the ability to access internet porn through dial-up and then broadband and then whatever we have now. Um, it's like that those images, that internet porn is pushing the culture uh, to be more pornified as part of as part of that process. So dancers are competing with um, young women who are very who are taught who are socialized to to dress provocatively and act like strippers in mainstream culture and more and more young women are actually going to strip bars so that was another huge huge finding um there's a club in um in lexington where i did my last my the, the data collection for the new edition where uh, the manager and the dancers said that up to 40% of the women on the weekend night of uh, people on weekend nights were female customers. So female customers really complicate the space for actual, for the workers because the female customers will, uh, will sometimes do things like lap dance on the male patrons for free. They'll sometimes take their shirts off in the clubs, um, and make out with each other. And and I guess most and, and the worst part for the dancers is that women don't tend to want to tip. So they're not going to be wanting to have a lot of lap dances. They're there sort of to have fun and to have a new experience. But they they're not a real good source of income for the women that are working there. And so that all is sort of competition and complicates the environment. Some women, some dancers do like the female customers. Uh, some feel neutral and some really dislike the female customers. So it was sort of a mixed bag what the what the exotic dancers thought about the female customers. And they're a little bit more intruding, if I remember correctly, on the bodies of the dancers, thinking that because they were also women that they had the rights to the body of the stripper who was on stage. Is that right? Well, they will. They would say things like, show me your pussy, and some of them could be touchy. Um, but And so dancers talked about that, and it bothered them. Um, I tend to think that there's almost no way that the female customers can compete with the male customers for being touchy and annoying. Frankly, I think, though, that the dancers, it was just more, they were just more upset when the women did that because I think they had, it was just a higher bar for women. And so when women violated it, it was more visible to them. And did you see anything about, uh, with Raj culture, a heightening of expectations that the patrons had for the experience with the strippers? 
Yes, that's another way that Raj culture complicates the experience for a dancer is that uh, one way to compete with the culture and to compete with women coming into the clubs and doing essentially their job for free is to do more sex work in the clubs. So there was a decline in conditions. There's been a decline in so where it could be you could make $350 being topless. Now you have to be more than just topless. Now you need to do lap dances and maybe take off your bottoms in order to make that kind of money. And in addition to that, uh, there was also a part of your book where you wrote about the uh, change in drug culture that existed from uh, your first book to now what exists in the in the strip clubs now. Could you talk more about that? Yes, and actually let me start by just talking about the drug culture, the drug and alcohol culture of the clubs a little bit too because that's that's a stereotype about strip clubs that yes, and it and it is true that there is a lot of drug and alcohol use, especially alcohol use in the clubs. In the clubs that allow alcohol cuz some so it's just different in every city um with what the rules are. So in Lexington you uh can only you can't serve alcohol if you're totally nude, and it, it'll just depend. Some some clubs, you some cities, you can be totally nude and serve alcohol. So everywhere is different. Um, but so what happens is uh, in the clubs, uh, part of the work expectations is that the dancers sell drinks to clients because that's where the clubs make a lot of their money is through customers purchasing drinks. And the clubs like uh, the customers to buy drinks for dancers because they charge more. And that's, again, another source of revenue. Um, and the dancers find that the more they drink, the more money they make. So I always like to pose this to audiences when I give talks and to students. If you think about the worst job you've ever had, can you think of one, Michael? A really, really crappy, awful job. Serving, but uh, <laughs> nowhere near as horrible. As, no, yeah. as you wrote about, nowhere near as horrible <laughs> as stripping. You have to go back to the same place every time. Yeah. <laughs> and assuming you're someone who likes to drink, if you imagine the worst job you've ever had and your boss wants you to drink and your customers want you to drink, and if you drink, you make more money, virtually everyone under that circumstance would drink. So it's not like alcoholic drug-addicted hoes go want to be strippers. It's that if you start stripping, you're going to drink because it's a workplace requirement and it's virtually impossible not to. Um, plus, it, it just makes it easier for a lot of women. It just numbs everything. It dulls it. It makes it just, you can just tune out stuff a lot better. Um, so dancers actually reported just the most incredible alcohol consumption. It was just stunning. And I'm just going to tell like a quick story of a woman featured in the book. Her name's April. And she told this about a time where, and this was near the end. She was like, she, she was out of the business. So the new edition, she's talking about how she left and why she left. And she describes this night where she had her usual four shots of tequila before she started it. That's like was her routine. And then over the course of the night had 12 flaming Dr. Peppers and then had to end the night by sharing a bottle of champagne with a customer and then drove home smoking a joint and was pulled over by the police and um and 
passed every one of the DUI tests, like the backwards ABCs and walking on the line and all that stuff, um, and but ended up failing the breathalyzer so profoundly they thought it was broken. And then they sent her home. So that was quite a story of sort of excessive drug use. Um, but one thing that one of the managers talked about that was a change in the drug culture was that it used to be that cocaine was the drug of choice. And cocaine, he described as a drug that revved people up. It was kind of expensive. It made people want to hustle and get money. Uh, and in fact, dancers found when they drank a lot, if they ended the night with a line of cocaine, it made them more alert and able to get home. Anyway, with the change, uh, with the sort of this influx of heroin, with the opioid crisis, um, with heroin entering the clubs, heroin is not a drug that makes people want to bop around and make money. So, and it's not as inexpensive a drug as cocaine. So, um, in the book, the manager, I mean, in our interview, the manager said that once heroin entered the club, the dancers are just kind of hanging out, lolling off and some, you know, just nodding out. I mean, maybe even overdosing in the clubs. And that's just, as he explained, not very good for business. And I assume these girls are not coming into the, I mean, I'm certain that some may have come in uh, already drinking alcohol and having an alcohol problem or a drug problem, but the lion's share of what, uh, uh, you found is that these girls were not coming into the uh, into the club with the problem already. They were not addicts prior to coming into the club, but the experience they had is what resulted in alcoholism and drug addiction. And, yeah. I'm, th- and I'm seeing some uh, some parallel between this heightened sex culture and expectation of more, and maybe the uh, greater need to numb the experiences they are having with the drugs and alcohol they're using. Yes, exactly. So, yep, for sure. More on other findings, other things that you might want to uh, pull out from this book. I'm at a point where we, we've ta- discussed a lot of the material. You give some personal stories. Uh, let's talk about uh, patriarchy and the men's expectation relationships that they have had uh, out with uh, men outside of the club and how that influenced the experience of strippers. Some use it as an escape, as a way to get out of their current situation, while others. Uh, did it uh, as a way for earning money and uh, having boyfriends or husbands who were in support of their uh, in support of their dancing. Yes. Okay. Let me talk a little bit about that. So um, another new finding that came up with the uh, with the new edition was um, a group of women that were in the clubs that, that were probably there before, but that I just hadn't really connected with quite as much the first time around when I did interviews were very young, uneducated women who came from poverty. Um, so a lot of the interviews that I did uh, this for the new edition were at a club that um, that employs dancers who are 18 and older. So that means really young women. So I interviewed a bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-old women. Um, and the customers that come to an 18 and older club tend to be either young people who can't get into the over 21 bars and older men who like really young dancers. So um, one of the findings was that some young women were turning to stripping to get out of abject poverty and I mean so bad that it's like food insecurity. So um, one of the managers that I interviewed said that she 
she she didn't necessarily think that stripping was really good for women overall. And in fact, almost most of the people in the clubs don't really think that they're going to be there long term. I mean, and that includes everyone, not just the dancers, the management, the bouncers, the DJs, the servers. Everyone thinks they're coming in. They're going to work for a little while pay off whatever bills they have and get out of there. And when you end up there longer, that's not necessarily seen as a good thing because the culture, everyone recognizes that there are destructive elements of the culture. So there were a lot of managers who every single meeting would be like, okay, girls, what's your plan for getting out of here? You know, you got to be going to school and going to your classes, you know, consider this, you know, your, your time for you to make up your bills. So that's kind of an interesting thing in a workplace because I can't really think of another workplace where your boss is telling you, hey, what's your plan for finding another job? Because, you know, you need to take care of yourself. Um, with all that being said, though, one of the managers uh, said that she felt like stripping was helpful to young women who were coming from that click, that kind of poverty because then uh, it was just a way out of just homelessness, for example. Uh, so I interviewed a young woman who had started stripping when she was 17. I think she was 23 or 24 when I interviewed her, 25. Um, and her home situation had been terrible. She had never had a bed. Um, they lived on peanut butter sandwiches. Uh, it was just really challenging. They were, they were always moving from place to place because their housing was so precarious. And, um, she was really just trying to, to, meet her needs and get out of the house and, and make a living. So she started stripping when she was 17 and she ended up being just incredibly talented at creating what culturally we call the girlfriend experience. Does that ring a bell to you? Have you heard of that before? Yes. Um, being a, being a girlfriend to acting as a girlfriend to many of the patrons, but not actually being the girlfriend because there's no actual commitment there between the two parties. So giving an experience that is similar to that as a way for that uh, uh, patron to escape from their um, their normal life. Yes. And I would say in some cases, uh, now if you, if you go to a, a brothel, there's actually um, in Nevada, for example, legal, prostitution is only legal in the United States in Nevada in a few counties and brothels. And you can buy the girlfriend experience for four hours, for eight hours, for two days. It's super expensive, but that's a thing you can purchase as a customer. Um, but then it ends because then the customer leaves unless he comes back. Uh, in the case of stripping, regulars, dancers really appreciate their regulars. They're their favorite customers because those are the folks, usually men, that they can count on to come back uh, week after week, night after night, who they can rely on as a um, as a source of income that they can count on that's, you know, that's dependable because it's, it's just, it's extremely precarious, the money in a strip bar. One day you can make six and a hundred dollars. The next day you could make three or leave ending up owing the club money. So having a regular there that, you know, you're going to leave the club with at least $200. It just is a, a relief. You can take a little breather. So this customer and I'll call her, I mean, I'm sorry, this dancer, I think I call her Diana in the book. Um, she was really good at getting regulars and getting regulars to support her. 
So she said within uh, a couple of months, she had customers that were coming to see her. Eventually, one actually bought her a house. I was like, really? A whole house? Um, I was like, just, you mean it was his house and you live there? And she was like, no, no, it was in my name. Um, and, and she would maintain these relationships with these regulars by calling them um, every week. So she had a list of like 20 men that she was in contact with over the phone. It's almost like sales calls, actually, if you think about it. If she's creating this intimacy that I care about you. She said, if you let the customers think you care about them, you make a whole lot more money. So she would call them and chat with them. She would be available if they called her. They wouldn't necessarily be long calls, uh, but they liked the idea that if they wanted to get a hold of her, they could. Sometimes they even brought her to meet their families. So they were really attached. So what? So they really thought that she was like a girlfriend on some level. And um, that's sort of one of the brilliant things that exotic dancers are able to do is to give customers the feeling that there's more intimacy than there really is. They're very good at that. Uh, and Diana was just excellent. Uh, so she had a lot of customers, customers who would, if they came into the club, would pay her to sit with them and wear his jacket so that she wouldn't be looked at by other men. So that's kind of an interesting sort of relationship. What happened with Diana is she really kind of just went into this decline of, of just in, incredible depression and then substance abuse. She had a child and um, she realized that she just wasn't able to. She was just angry and sad all the time. And her child was angry and sad. And she just had this moment where she just couldn't keep doing this and became what she described as suicidal. And um, and eventually she ended up turning to a faith-based organization to, ha to, have, to get help to get out of sex work um, as just sort of a transitional place for her. Um, and she ended up not, not leaving stripping with anything. She didn't keep that house. She's, what is her, she said something along the lines of, you know, I, I only left with the clothes on my back that God gave me something along those lines. She used real Christian language to talk about it. So her story was really in, in, compelling. And the exiting process can be extremely uh, strenuous or, um, or easier depending on the situation. If I remember correctly, one of the girls uh, stories had, had to do with um, basically being kicked out of her home and uh, then sleeping on her manager's blow-up mattress or, or whatever mattress uh, only after being um, uh, beaten by uh, by the boyfriend who, who who had two different girls in the same home. Um, yes. Do you want me to tell that story? Because that's a really grueling story. If that that that's a uh... well, let me tell you about a little bit. You. Yeah, but... go ahead. Okay, so that, that dancer um, is Lacey in the book, and she, um, I think it was Arizona that she was dancing in, and she, she started, again, she started when she was underage, um, she was doing well, she ended up meeting a woman who, at a radio talk show, where she was like kind of a feature personality as a stripper, and the woman introduced her to her boyfriend, and then boy, invited her over, and it turned out her boyfriend was a pimp, and, um, and there was that sort of seduction process of bringing Lacey into the family, creating a sense of family, and then um, 
expecting Lacey to give all her money to the pimp that I call Jim in the book. And he not only takes all her money, he brings the two women to California. He has them not only strip, he has them do uh, street prostitution. And he would uh, punish them if they didn't bring home a certain amount of money. Um, so one day Lacey decided that she should leave Jim. She took a thousand dollars, uh, and left. And then he started texting her and calling, begging her to come back. And she did. And then he, and he just beat her badly, raped her, threw her out with just the clothes on her back. And she was just desperate. She ended up going to the house of a, of a, club staff, it was a manager or a DJ or a bouncer, I can't remember. And he let her sleep on his air mattress while she called her mom. And then he tried to have sex with her. So she was just incredibly traumatized. And she eventually ended up, she, she ended up getting away from her there and coming back, uh, actually coming to Kentucky and living with her mom for a while before she found her way out of the sex industry. And the reason I bring this up is because it's a huge spectrum. Not every uh, stripper is necessarily the same or has the same experience. Certainly, we could put them into cohorts or examples, and because as sociologists, that's what we do, right? But mm-hmm. figure out figure out what certain strippers have in common, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're all in, that they're all the same. But no. there are different categories of strippers based on the experiences that they have. Looking at the aggregate. And then maybe a maybe a third example was the uh, the stripper who saw it as an escape and almost as a spiritual experience. Uh, I think she previously did burlesque. Uh, in addition to stripping, she did burlesque or, or some type of show, some type of show performance and used uh, uh, used stripping as a way to uh, further train uh, in, in that area. Oh yeah, she was a great story, and and she still works as a burlesque performer now, um, and does the most amazing burlesque too. She's just an extraordinarily talented performer, and she was in burlesque, and she actually started stripping in order to improve her burlesque and um, deepen her ability to connect with the audience because she felt like that was something that strippers were incredibly good at that burlesque performers were not. And she was also really critical of the way that burlesque performers would look down on exotic dancers as though they were not as good as uh, the burlesque performers, that sort of stigma that happened. And not only do I see a continuum in terms of the type of dancers that we have, but there's also a continuum that exists in in the type of uh, club it is, how 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 much raunch is allowed into the doors, or whether it's uh, just topless or topless and bottomless, and uh, and how each state is even a little bit different in terms of what they would allow for strippers to do in the clubs. Yes, and those it it definitely it varies. It varies by club it varies by city it varies by state so the expectations and the rules are different everywhere and the dancers were all over the place with what they preferred i mean some dancers preferred to to dance in the very the higher end gentleman clubs um that like had a, a nicer looking environment and some dancers preferred to perform in more working class bars as one woman said it's just all boobs and beer no matter how you dress it up so um, so it just depended on what kind of customer base the dancers felt like she could connect with better. Uh, some thought that the the businessmen that come to the high end clubs were just so arrogant and annoying. They didn't want to have to 
that that was not the client base that they wanted to uh, work for uh, versus the the men that would come to more of a working class place. And then you tried to explore race a little bit more, but it, it appeared as if the girls didn't see race as a uh, as a major indicator on whether they received business or not, because they knew that the patrons came in with an expectation and, and they didn't uh, seem to see race as a uh, uh, as a major influence on on whether or not they would uh, receive money or uh, or have have a similar experience in their profession. Yes. Yeah, so race, just like everywhere. Uh, People have to deal with racism and people of color have to deal with more racism than white people, for sure. So if there's if you're a dancer of color, um, the racist customers are not going to necessarily pick you to give the lap dances. Although it was kind of interesting. Uh, one of the managers I interviewed said he thought that the men coming from eastern Kentucky, uh, the good old boys with the Confederate flags on their trucks, almost always were going for the women, for the black women or the women in goth, dressed like goth and sort of that style. Um, but race ultimately was just something the customers got to pick. They, if they liked a certain kind of breast, a certain hair color, a certain skin color. They just got to choose because that's what they were paying for. Um, but the blonde, you know, playboy type dancer, that that woman pretty much usually made the most money. And that's another sort of illustration of the racist hierarchy. And that that brings out the science of it. One of the girls uh, you had mentioned and you had interviewed, she had a, a, all sorts of costumes, and she would come into the uh, into the club, look around, and see what what night it was to determine mm-hmm. what she should wear that evening. Yes, that's right, exactly. And they, so, and play to the crowd because you just want to make the absolute most money you can. One dancer is called the customers wallets. Men are just wallets. There's bald wallets and fat wallets and and whatever it is, you want to be just whatever that wallet wants so you can get the most money from them. She said that she lies freely with the customers. She'll be a single mom if that's what will get her money or a struggling student or an artist, whatever it is that they, a biker chick, whatever it is that will make him feel connected to her and want to give her money. Dual object objectification he sees her as nothing more than a sexual object while maybe she sees him as nothing more than a wallet. Yep. As there is a mutual objectification that goes yes. on there. Yep. Yes. So, um, with your, with your new book on raunch culture, uh, what I'm seeing here is maybe the uh, raunch culture that is confined to the strip club may not just be in the strip club as we see heightened sexualization of society and maybe exiting those doors and going out into the community. Is that your focus uh, with Raunch Culture on this new book? Yes. So, um, so again, like I said, I, I date kind of the beginning of Raunch Culture to the early to mid nineties and just accelerating and accelerating with internet technology and, uh, mobile digital technology. Um, and it's basically the pornification of mainstream culture where attitudes, behavior, accoutrements from the sex industry filter into the mainstream culture where the culture tells women you should, you should 
be like a porn star. You should be like a stripper. And it's super hot that you get to be like a stripper. Aren't you empowered? So there's this narrative of empowerment that women are told that, oh, look at you. You get to be sexy and hot. And aren't you empowered because you get to be sexy and hot like a porn star? And I'm really critical of that. Um, I see it as a culture. Uh, it's compulsory. Like you have to be hot. And I actually can compare it to the purity culture, which constrains women's bodies by saying you should be covered up because if men look at you, they're going to desire you and you're creating sin. Um, whereas ranch culture tells women you should be half naked or naked all the time because that's just what you're supposed to be as a woman because you're supposed to be hot and sexy because that's what you like and that shows how empowered you are. And both of those cultures are control how women express themselves. And I also write a great deal about raunch culture. I call it a condition of inarticulation. And that's a theory I developed in my book in Pray the Gay Away, um, where we're in this, um, where there's something that's happening, but we don't have the language or perception to talk about it. And in the case of, of sexual minorities who are closeted, there's no way to talk about being out and being gay if you're if you're in a homophobic space that won't let you do that. And I think raunch culture is a condition of inarticulation because especially for millennials, it's the only culture they know. So seeing half naked women all the time is simply normal. That's just how you're supposed to be if you're a woman. And they don't understand how to even talk about that as something to critique because the only language that's available is to say, well, who look at that. Isn't she so hot? I would do her. I mean, that's, that's the word we have. And if you critique it, you're told, oh, you just don't have a sense of humor. And what are you a feminazi? And are you trying to regulate other people's sex lives? Like those words are easy to say. The words that say, why do I have to be a sex worker? Like, why, why is that something that's good? You know, that all that language um, we don't have. And so what my new book explores is how this how much culture con controls and constrains the lives of millennials from their perspective. So I do interviews with millennials about their thoughts on run culture and the impact it has in their lives. And, um, not to give the book away, but uh, <laughs> uh, do you focus on a specific uh, uh, type of, uh, of audience of audience? Are you focusing in on focusing in these interviews on, uh, on, uh, college educated students or uh, I guess is, is that, is that um, something that you look into? Well, I, I'm interviewing people of all generations, not just millennials, although over half the interviews are with millennials. Most of them have at least some college, but not all of them. Um, and they talk about, oh, they have, wow, they have some really poignant things to say. I mean, again, if we're talking about the technological revolution, this whole world of social media is also changing our lives in ways that we just, that are having unanticipated consequences, like Russian bots influencing the 2016 election. Um, so the young people are growing up immersed in social media, in Instagram accounts, and they're so the launch culture in social media is just overwhelming. And so all the selfie, the selfie culture, um, provocatively posed stuff is making young women feel um, 
insecure about the way they look and like they can never measure up uh, to these idealized images and put a lot of effort into trying to do so. And that's causing a lot of stress and a lot of depression. And honestly, what we're seeing um, on our campus right now uh, is and what some uh, recent work on social media is finding is um, problems with mental illness, with depression and anxiety, specifically connected to social media and this idealized presentation um, that makes viewers feel like they're just not good enough no matter what they do. Uh, I can even think of uh, Snapchat as being one anecdotal example of uh, mm-hmm. you don't even have to put on makeup. You just press that filter and it'll make you look beautiful. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Snapchat, and although I can't blame Snapchat, just like I can't blame Facebook or something like that, they're playing into something that's been institutionalized and they're doing it in the way they know best to make money. You know, and I write about this, like, so this whole technological revolution, and I'm writing about internet porn. I have a whole chapter on internet porn because I'm incredibly appalled by the content of internet porn, not because we see, we can see erotic images, but because the images that are out there are so extreme and so violent and so degrading to women. Um, so I spend some time exploring what that content is and how it's affecting us. And so one of the one of the takeaway points I, I leave with is that I do not think that there is some cadre of men who are thinking, I want to come up with the most violent image I possibly can in order to keep women down. Just like I don't think the Facebook creators wanted the Russians to, you know, influence our democracy, but that these changes technologically are happening faster than we can keep up with. We as humans cannot, we cannot adapt as fast as the technology is changing. So we're having these unintended consequences. And one unintended consequence is this, this incredibly violent, disturbing porn that now very young children are able to see and, and it affects them. And so it's like the porn engine and the tech engine are, moving. It's like nobody's driving them. Everyone's just following the money. And I don't, it's really hard for us as academics to analyze it because it's changing faster. Like my book, I'm afraid my book will be out of date before it gets published, even though I'm trying to be as cutting edge as I can with what's, ha- what's happening. And that's why we have this, this five-year rule of in three-year being best for the literature we use in our, in our writing. So mm-hmm. I just talked to my practicum students about that. Well, why not 10 years ago? Well, because uh, what was published three years ago or five years ago could be anywhere from eight to 10 years old in terms of the data used and the findings found there. Right. And you know, I mean, in your experience, one article, I could, it took me three years to get a recent journal article to press. So... Is wow, you know, it, it, we're glacial in comparison to the cultural changes. Yes. Well, I look forward to this uh, this uh, new book on raunch culture. What's your projected publication date on that? Uh, uh, sort of a magic question, maybe. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I hope in a year or so. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. I don't know. I just turned in a full draft to my editor in December, so I'm waiting to get some feedback from her. So probably not until 20, probably not for at least another year. <laughs> 
Well, I look forward to when that comes out to to have you back on the show because this is truly just a an ongoing story from the the original strip to what you have now and and what is coming out with Ranch Culture, bringing it all together to to really show how society and and, and Ranch Culture are uh, are parallel to one another and 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 the interactions that we have in everyday life with with women with men and the experiences they have with uh, with the media with technology. Yep, exactly. So yes, and it's wonderful when one scholarship can have that kind of an arc where a project feeds into another project into another project. It's so rewarding to do that kind of work as an academic. So what what advice would you have? I know we're not in the the business of giving advice or giving answers, but findings. But uh, I guess what some what are some conclusions that you can give to our audience members as they're listening to to this? What what would you uh, urge them to do? in terms of overcoming this ranch culture at the individual level. I, I think that's something that you write in your book. Mm-hmm. At the individual level, we have more agency than at the institutional level. Yes, exactly so. And I do have a whole chapter in the book on transforming ranch culture. So on an individual level, what you can do is simply acknowledge it and see it. You can just perceive it. You can just say, oh, yeah, it exists. It is there. <laughs> and that's a start. <laughs> and begin have, and, and, and think to yourself, what do I think about that? You know, what do I think that I keep seeing naked women all over the place? And how might that affect the women I know? And how does that affect me? And what's my, what, what do I think about it? Do I want to do I do I not like it? And if I don't like it, do I want to say something about it? Do I want to uh, Do I want to challenge it maybe? So the first step is seeing it, deciding what you think of it, and then being willing to gently challenge other people about their participation in it. Um, And that's, I mean, it's hard to have conversations with someone about uh, issues that are controversial, whether it's uh, Black Lives Matter, climate change, um, Trump, abortion, all that stuff can be hard. But It's worth, it doesn't mean we shouldn't have those important conversations. So I would say, don't be afraid to talk about it and don't beat yourself up if it doesn't go great. And I actually have some tips if you want to hear the actual tips for how to do it. That would be excellent. Okay. So start with somebody who you think is receptive to your idea. So if you want to talk about um, launch culture for example, you don't want to have the person you're talking about, someone who is invested in it, who's maybe in a fraternity, who wouldn't see it if it hit over the head, who likes it. Like, that's not your best person. Uh, so start with someone who's at least neutral. Uh, and then uh, gently bring up the subject and test it out. And if you find that the conversation goes poorly, the person doesn't understand, is challenging you, or if you find yourself getting defensive or irritable, stop the conversation just say take control and do it in a really nice way say you know what I just feel like I am not take a hit I'm not explaining myself very well right now let's let's talk about I appreciate how engaged you've been and I would love to talk to you about this more later but right now I just feel like I am not you know speaking my best Um, and then change the subject bring anything up that you know that person wants to talk about that will engage them oh like next weekend we're going to go golfing I mean whatever it is to change the subject 
and then bookmark it in your head. And the very next time the opportunity arises to have this conversation with the person, bring it up again and try again and see how it goes. And you probably will be in a fresher space. I did this with my cousin at a family reunion. We were talking uh, about feminism and he made this disparaging comment about uh, TERFs, which uh, is a word that that refers to trans exclusionary radical feminists. I don't know if you've ever heard of that term before. Um, And I don't like, they exist, but I I don't like that term because I I, I didn't like the way he brought it up. And I, I wasn't mad at him. It's just that he brought it up in a way that I felt like he didn't understand that what he was doing was It was like throwing all like when you talk about turfs, it makes people think that all radical feminists are like that. And it makes it hard for us to appreciate the contributions of radical feminism. And I was trying to explain that. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so hard to explain here in the middle of this reunion. So I just changed the subject. And then 20 minutes later, we were chatting about the Hulu adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale. And. I was like, oh, I brought it up again. I'm like, you know, we both love The Handmaid's Tale. And The Handmaid's Tale is a radical feminist story. And, you know, when you use the word turf, it, it um, I don't even, I said it better at the time. When you use the word turf, it again, like lumps all radical feminists in this negative umbrella. So you just might want to think twice before using that term. And he got it. And that was great. And that was fine. So it was like this kind of like process. It's a process, I guess, is the <laughs> the short version of what I just described. Yes, and it's the environment, and it's how it's approached. As you said, mm. we have to be in a, in a in a conversation in which the person is receptive of what is being said. If they're not receptive, you can't create any sort of change because that person is going to deny uh, any sort of uh, rationale that uh, you're trying to provide them. And just maybe fight with you and have conflict. Well, thank you, Bernadette, for being on this show, and uh, I look forward to having you again in the future to talk about your upcoming book, Raunch Culture. Uh, This has been an episode of New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network, and uh, thank you for listening today.